0: Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Wartime celebrates its 50th episode, and we close the book on Season 3 for good. But what's in store for the future of the podcast? We read listener emails and give away free books. It's the Season 3 Wrap-Up. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our Season 3 finale of Wartime. I'm your host, as always, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we've been discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and ideas that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website, which we'll talk about today, BradyKreitzer.com. And, of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Today, as we put a pin in our third season, it's worth some reflection and some note as to where the podcast has been and hopefully where it's going. We have a few listener emails to read. Thank you very much for those. Big ones we'll address in a big way. Uh, And we'll talk about, again, what you can expect from wartime in the months to come. As a bit of a refresher, uh, right now, wartime has finished its third season. And amazingly, that's been 50 episodes. I think today is the 50th. In those 50 episodes, we've had about 500,000 downloads, which considering that we're not talking about the Kardashians or the Walking Dead or Star Trek or something, we're talking about straight history. That's pretty good. I'm very proud of it, Uh, and again, you are as much a part of it as anyone, for listening and hopefully spreading the word to your friends who think likewise. You could be like me, however, uh, and be the only one in your immediate group of friends who has any interest in history, uh, and in that case, they probably uh, won't want to hear about it. But at any rate, do your best, spread the word. Uh, It's greatly appreciated. With that said, I think it's about time we look to the future of wartime what you can expect, what you'll be seeing. I received a lot of emails for this, uh, for today's episode. Uh, And again, we did choose a winner uh, for the free book, the email of the season. Um, But interestingly enough, they all ended the same way. And the way that the emails ended was a basic question of what comes next for wartime. Uh, Well, if you listen to the season three midpoint show, a very brief episode, uh, one of the things that I've been working on is filming a new cable television series that will air on the Pennsylvania cable network called Battlefield Pennsylvania. We visit different battlefields, some very famous, some surprisingly uh, in individuals' backyards, Uh, and we meet with experts, one-on-one interviews myself, playing the role of interviewer, and we really just record a good solid hour of discussion of why these sites are important. Now, they all do occur again within the geographic limits of what is today Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Uh, But the reality is, for a lot of them, from the American Revolution to the Seven Years' War, no such boundary existed. So when we talk about battles, like uh, the Battle of the Monongahela, the Battle of Bushy Run, uh, Fort Loudoun, Fort Duquesne, uh, the Battle of Lake Erie in the War of 1812, for a lot of these, they're not necessarily totally Pennsylvania-centric. I mean, these are major events in American history. One of the things that I I wanted to do uh, was highlight events that had universal appeal. So I'm going to be spending a lot of May, June, and July on the road all over the state of Pennsylvania filming this. Um, what that means is the podcast is probably not going to end, of course, uh, but slow down a bit. Uh, I will be sure to put those episodes on the Wartime Podcast feed, so whatever feed you're using to download this, you'll soon be getting, hopefully, by June or July uh, episodes of, of Battlefield Pennsylvania. Um But again, that's going to fill in a lot of the extra time that I have, Um, aside from promoting my new book, Hessians, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America, Uh, and of course dealing with a little boy who's about to turn one year old. But the future of wartime, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is going to be a little bit different in format, in scope, in scale. Obviously, with all that's going on uh, in my life, uh, doing this every week. May or may not happen. Um, so, what I'd like to do to break up the the continuity a bit is shift away from one topic, as we've been doing in season one, Colonial America; season two, the Ancient World; season three, the American Revolution, and dive into something else, something I think a little more mainstream, and also sorely needed. What I'd like to talk about uh, in season four of wartime are individuals, events, and places that have a very dark or macabre history. People like Jack the Ripper. People like uh, Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler. Uh, places uh, ill repute like Bedlam, the famous uh, mental institution uh, in, in, in Victorian Britain. These kind of places that have a big-time name appeal, obviously, but that have very few examples of very frank, professional historians talking about them. When you deal with a person like Vlad the Impaler, for example, what you'll find is that popular narratives, Hollywood, have done a real disservice to him, why he's important, who he really is, what his life entailed. But there are historians out there working on this individual professionally who have made really astounding discoveries. So am I selling out a little bit? Maybe. But we do need listeners. Again, 500,000 downloads is nothing to sneeze at. But the fact of the matter is, you and I, of course, both want more because it aids history a bit. It pushes the uh, agenda a little further. And it helps give us more episodes of the things we like to talk about. So Season 4 will be that bend on dark personalities. And the nice thing about that is uh, we don't have to do one weekly. We can really stretch that out to last throughout the summer and maybe even the fall. We will have call-in guests. To talk about history, believe it or not. Uh, and I'm about to do something that very few historians will do. Uh, I'll admit that I don't know everything. We'll have people on who do, people who have published books and published works about those topics. But I think it'll be very neat. I think it will take figures we all recognize and really kind of shed a new light on them. How should we really be thinking about them? And what are the new discoveries about them? So that's season four of wartime. I'm very excited about that. I would foresee that Coming in midsummer or the fall. Again, mixing in will be these episodes of Battlefield Pennsylvania, audio and video, if I can figure out the technology. But that's what we're dealing with. Again, uh, I'm very grateful for everything that you, the listener, have done, the emails you've sent, the donations you've sent to keep this going. Again, uh, hosting a podcast, if you aren't familiar, of course, is free to listen. I listen to podcasts. Uh, literally two, three times a day, not my own, of course. Uh, but they do cost us money on our end here in studio to get them produced. So uh, your donations really help. You can go to wartimepodcast.com. Every little bit goes a very long way. But that's what we're dealing with here. Moving on. Um, I mention every episode, uh, my website, BradyKreitzer.com. Uh And one of the reasons I do it is because it's one of the direct connections you, the listener, can have to me so we can converse. And anyone out there who, who has emailed the program before will know that uh, I absolutely respond to emails. Uh, and I have, I think, three or four right now different email conversations going on with listeners. So don't hold back. Uh, I'm happy to do it. But if you are interested, bradykreitzer.com, one of the real benefits of it is that uh, it lets me do something that I love to do more than anything else. And that's meet with you and interact with you in person. On bradykreitzer.com, there is a tab for appearances. I'm booking now for the spring and summer of 2015. If you are a member of a historical society, if you are a member of of a historic club, if you own a bookstore, if you have an event and you'd like me to appear and speak, uh, you can visit BradyKreutzer.com and book that event there. If you're interested in just coming to see an event, uh, meeting up and catching up a little bit. Uh, you can see where I'll be appearing um, on that on that page as well. So uh, we're taking dates right now for May, June, July, and August of 2015. We do have events posted. If you live anywhere in the American Northeast, uh, look us up uh, because I'd be happy to meet with you. So BradyKreitzer.com, check that out. Wartimepodcast.com. Every little bit helps as far as donations. Uh, I think that's the end of the shameless plug portion of the podcast. Oh, and I almost forgot, May 21st, the release of my fourth book, Hessians, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America. We're going to start promotional tours for that uh, in May, so uh, keep a lookout, Uh I may be in your area soon. Pick up a copy. It's available for pre-order right now on amazon.com. That's been about 10 minutes of doing something I'm not totally comfortable with, and that's self-promoting, but it has to be done. You're still here, hopefully, Uh, so now we can get to the really important stuff uh, regarding the end of Season 3. I always ask for emails at the end of the season, and I do get emails throughout the season as well, Uh, and I generally sift through the best of them, not to say any of them are bad, but I think the most listener-friendly emails for this episode. And we've got a few good ones. I'd like to focus on two today. That's shorter than the amount I usually use, uh, but they are very big emails with some seriously deep questions involved. And I think it's going to be um, beneficial uh, for us to just take our time with them. The first email I'd like to read uh, is one that we haven't gotten before. And I'm very excited to have this because I was hoping this would be the case somewhere. Where it happened, of course, is a little bit of a surprise for me. Uh, but it comes from Laura. Laura writes, hello. I'm a 16-year-old student in England, and I'm studying the American independence period, 1754 to 1783, in history this year for my A-level. Firstly, thanks for doing the podcast. I've listened to lots of them, and they're very helpful. My teacher really rates them and we all listen to them regularly. Secondly, I was wondering what you think are the most important factors for the American Revolution and why the Americans won. Thanks, Laura. Laura, uh, I responded to her, uh, says she's a student of Wimbledon High School in Mr. White's history class, and she asked me to read Mr. White's nickname. And I got to be honest, I really wrestled with this because uh, I had a lot of nicknames for my teachers in high school. And none of them were probably ones they liked having. And most of them were jokes with my friends. But she says he likes to be called White the Great. So, Mr. White, from one educator to another, I apologize ahead of time for that. Uh, Anyway, thanks for the email, Laura, all the way from England. Interesting dynamic this time, right? America versus Britain. We have both sides of the pond. And interestingly enough, we have Americans and and Brits emailing in. So, that's good. Um, Her question was... What were the biggest factors the Americans won? And of course, this is a good episode to really kind of review a bit and highlight the major points. But one of the things that's, I think, really interesting about the revolution uh, is that it's not necessarily a conventional war the way we think. This is not World War I. This is not World War II. Uh, this is not a war where a peace agree- uh, agreement ends the war and there you have an official beginning of hostilities. It's a difficult war. And I say it a lot, but it's difficult because it's a war of ideas. And wars of ideas are one that are, are, are some that are very difficult to win. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and I've said it a lot this season, but the American Revolution, in my mind, is completed when the Declaration of Independence is signed, July of 1776. The war is the defense of the idea. But this is what's so amazing about it. Nathaniel Green when he was battling Charles Cornwallis all over the American South, when he was leading him on that goose chase through the back country, Cornwallis feeding off of the land, uh, robbing plantations, stripping away uh, the goods from the locals, Green knew this war could go on forever. Uh, and the longer it went, the worse it was for Britain. Why? Because more people would turn against them. And he also knew that even if the war ended badly for the Americans, Who's to say that in another 10 years or 20 years, those same ideals wouldn't pop up again, wouldn't resurrect? What I'm saying is it's kind of a no-win situation for the British. Once the spirit of republicanism, the spirit of democracy takes hold of a people, it's very hard to get that away from them. Now, there's some serious growing pains involved in that. What do you do once you get it? If not the British, then who will be in power? What will that government look like? These are all big questions the American states faced. But they're all questions that any revolutionaries anywhere in the world is facing all the time. If you look at what's happened in the Middle East, and this may be venturing into difficult waters for some people, but trust me, uh, I won't hold anything back. Over the last four or five years, I think you've seen this writ small. Places like Libya, places like Egypt. You have uh, places like Tunisia, where it all begins. You have this notion of an Arab Spring, this idea that the people rise up and demand an end to uh, what appears to be totalitarian regimes. That was the hard part. You have these civil wars that end, uh, but after that, what's going to replace it? If you want to see a really terrible example of that, look at what's going on in Syria and Iraq. Uh, You have the sweeping movement of the so-called Islamic State. Um, when there's a, a vacancy of power, we call that a power vacuum, someone's going to fill it. The question is who? And you have to be a fortune teller to really know that. Um, revolution's a nasty business in a lot of ways, but the examples of this go on and on and on throughout the history of the world. Nathaniel Green knew that. He knew that the, it very rarely ended well for the empire. So, Laura, when you asked me what I think the most important factor was, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, Foreign monies from France and Spain had a lot to do with it. Um, The fact that the war was being fought an ocean away from the British homeland had a lot to do with it. But I think more than anything else, ideas are what propel history forward. The change in ideas, the evolution of ideas. I tell my students all the time, Mr. White can verify this, This is not about names and dates and places. It might seem like it from the student perspective, but you're training to become something else. You're training to become a historian. It's about the change of ideas. When ideas change, the world changes. The Renaissance is a good example. The Enlightenment is a good example. The American Revolution is an extension of Enlightenment thought in many ways. So that's what I would say is the most important thing. It had the power of ideals behind it. They weren't fighting for a river valley... They weren't fighting for a piece of high ground. They weren't fighting for control of some island somewhere. Uh, But they were fighting for the very idea of freedom, democracy, uh, and republicanism in the world. So, heavy question, right? Why I took fewer than normal? Because I think it gives us room to expand upon them. So, Laura, Mr. White, Wimbledon High, thank you for the email. Keep listening. Tell your friends uh, and colleagues. Uh, The more people listening, the more the podcast grows, and of course, the better off we are. Moving on, next email. This one comes from uh, the United States. Uh, This comes from Chris. (laughs) Chris will write, and Chris has written the show many times before, uh, a nice paragraph, you know, talking about uh, how he appreciates the show. Uh, And he asked the question, uh, you make the point, Brady, very clearly that the British Empire had a true sense of urgency to snuff out the revolutionary prairie fire in North America, lest it spread to the rest of the empire. To this end, they ultimately fail, but it would appear that the damage to the empire as a whole was contained. Unlike France, who not surprisingly, and actually quite ironically, considered the aid they provided to the colonists was swept up in their own revolution less than a decade after the end of ours, So how was Britain uh, able to keep the revolutionary fire from spreading further, leaving their hold on Canada, the Caribbean, India, and Africa basically intact? Thanks, Chris. Uh, Chris got the award for email of the day. Uh, And Chris has, of course, won a free copy of any one of my four books. The one he's chosen is Hessians, my newest book, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America. Chris, uh, I was going to email you this, but I'm sure you're listening. That's not going to be released till May, as we've talked about. There's a little bit of time there. Uh, You're going to get your copy before anyone else does. It probably won't be till the end of April. Uh, And that's about three weeks early. So you have my word on that. You won't get it soon. So don't hold your breath until uh, the spring thaw in the Northeast here. Uh, 1776 has been looking pretty good because we're under about uh, 200 feet of snow. But uh, right around April, uh, early spring, Chris, you'll get your copy of Hessians. And again, every season, email in. I save the emails for the entire, um, uh, for the entire season. But his question is a really good one. And it's a nice place to wrap up this season. The question he asks is, if the American Revolution is so destructive, and it was and remains the most devastating defeat the British Empire would ever suffer, how did the entire empire fall apart? I think one of the things as Americans, and I'm speaking as one, we like to do is sort of look at this like we defeated the British Empire, right? David beats Goliath, that sort of thing. But the problem is, when you look a little closer, the British Empire isn't anywhere as near as big as it will be, even a 100 years after the Revolution. A century after the Revolution, the British Empire has colonies on every continent in the world, save Antarctica, and we still haven't really colonized that. They said the sun never set on the British Empire. They were right. They were the most powerful and largest empire in the history of the world. So it's not like they were beaten down and devastated by the Americans. And there's a reason for that. And that's what Chris is asking. Why don't the other colonies that watch what the Americans do fall apart as well? This is where historians really shine. Asking the big question, right? There's the obvious question, who wins the war? Then the, then the, the, the bigger question, which not many people see, why doesn't it spread further, A book was released a few years ago, and I'm recommending it now, by a historian named Maya Jasanoff, and the book was called Liberty's Exiles. It was probably the best detailed study of the Loyalist movement uh, ever published, Liberty's Exiles, Maya Jasanoff. But in that book, Professor Jasanoff basically says, we spend a lot of time talking about what she calls, and of course what's historically called, The Spirit of 1776. This idea that republicanism, self-governance, is a virtue that will spread around the world. But she begins her book not talking about the spirit of 1776, but the spirit of what she calls 1783. So what is the spirit of 1783? Well, the spirit of 1783 is what basically encompasses Britain after the fallout from the war. They lose their most profitable colonies overnight with the signing of the Treaty of Paris. They lose uh, what will be untold trillions of dollars then in the 18th century and in the future by losing control of them. And Britain will take a long hard look at itself and ask itself where did we go wrong and how can we make sure the very thing Chris was asking, losing their other colonies, doesn't happen? It's a big question. It's a tough question. Maya Jasanoff I think gives the best answer yet. What she says is the spirit of 1783 was the recovery from the revolution. It was the lesson learned. Britain before this, before the revolution, had a very inflexible position in terms of how they governed their colonies. I like to call it a one-size-fits-all policy. Every colony has a similar governing structure. Every colony has subtle nuances or major differences between them. They're very different. Virginia was different from North Carolina. Jamaica was different from some of their colonial holdings in India. I mean, uh, this is just reality. Britain really, I think, failed to recognize that to its fullest extent until the revolution occurred. Again, and you can listen to previously in the season, it seemed like every wrong move that could be made in terms of squashing this rebellion before it really took hold from 1763 onward was made. Because the British just weren't really willing to take a look at themselves and say that our empire is now enormous from 1762 to 1763, the end of the Seven Years' War, the conquest of France. And our system for governing it just isn't very good. So in 1783 and beyond, the British begin a policy of really, I think, considering the needs of the individual colonies. I mean, they'll meet with Canadians right? Uh, They'll meet with various Caribbean planters. They'll make concessions of power uh, that will ultimately keep them in control, but also give the individual colonies more control over their own fate. That's really why it doesn't happen. I mean, for us to say that the British were just very rigid and stiff and would not change anything, that's true until 1783. And after that, I think there's a long, hard look at what they have to do to be a modern empire and how they can avoid the same mistakes. Now, granted, there are big differences between American colonists and Jamaican colonists and Indian colonists, uh, but at its heart, it's still basically the same idea. You're taking your way of life, your empire, and you're dropping it it into a place where it never existed before and hoping to control it. Uh, That's a very tough sell if you're not willing to be flexible. And Chris, thanks for the question. Uh, they absolutely were. So, The Spirit of 1783, Maya Jasanoff. The book is called Liberty's Exiles. I just can't say enough about it. It's wonderful. Look it up. Read it. Um, it's, uh, it's very good as far as that goes. So, uh, again, Chris has been offered any one of my four books. He said he's a military historian. He'll be getting the new one. Uh, I'm really excited about it you know, I just actually finished up the page proofs for it. That's sort of what the pages will look like before they go to press. I've signed off on them. Uh, they're going to press now. It's, it's really, uh, I'm very proud of it. And it's going to hopefully advance the field a lot. Uh, so as always, thank you for listening. Uh, look forward to season four sometime in midsummer. Uh, we're going to be looking at, again, fascinating characters and places from the uh, annals of history. Look forward to Battlefield Pennsylvania this August. And, of course, uh, if you are in the American Northeast, uh, bradykreitzer.com, maybe I'll see you around. If you'd like to book an event, feel free to visit as well. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.